Hey friends, this is The Workflow Show. Media production technology stories, discussions about development, deployment, and maintenance of secure media asset management solutions. And of course, one of the tools in your workflow therapy toolbox. I'm Jason Whetstone, Senior Workflow Engineer and Developer at Chesapeake Systems. And I'm Ben Kilberg, Senior Solutions Architect at Chesapeake Systems. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the news. How does it all get done? What are some of the top workflow priorities in news organizations? What are some of the most important tools that news organizations use in their workflow? And what workflow show would be complete post-2020 without asking how the pandemic has changed how everything is done? We've invited CBS News Director of Technology Robert Lawson to talk about these challenges on the show with us today. Robert has over 20 years of experience as a film and television post-production professional including daily news television broadcasts, independent long-form documentary production, and high-end digital finishing for all television networks. So thank you for joining us today, Robert Lawson. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So let's start off our talk today and just let's talk a little bit about you. So tell us, tell us about your background. Like, How did you get into the field and, and what's your journey to uh, where you are now at CBS News? Um, well, I've been working in production for quite a long time, actually. I went to film school in New York, have been lucky enough to mostly be involved in production in one way or another the entire time. I used to work in independent production uh, in the 90s, worked for small production companies, uh, you know, long-form documentary style, both for film and broadcast television, mostly industrial and educational sort of things. Gotcha. After that, uh, I moved to... Post House in Manhattan, a high-end uh, analog video post house uh, back in the SD days. Okay, so some linear stuff there. Oh, yeah. I started, um, funny, my, my first job at the small production company out of college was transcribing interviews. Wow. With a foot pedal and a tape recorder and uh, word perfect for DOS. Nice. <laughs> I was just going to ask, wow, that's that's really something. So you must be a fast typer then. You know what? It, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> the only advantage that I had was that I could spell. And this, these were medical interviews with doctors and things like that. So uh, ah. I became very good at spelling all the words right. Gotcha. Uh, so it sounds like you sort of had a proficiency throughout your career towards the more technical sort of parts of the production process. Is that a fair assumption? It is. And the nice thing about going to film school at the time was you don't have to, of course. Plenty of people have come up in the industry just by doing and working. It was a great environment to be hands-on and kind of try everything. So I did a little bit of film editing. I did you know, on-site crew stuff, You know, worked as a PA, got to try a lot of things in, in a very low-pressure environment. Like your project might not have turned out so well for your class, but you didn't get fired. <laughs> and stuff sure. like that. So it was a really good opportunity to figure out what I wanted to do or what I was interested in. Towards the end of school, I, w I worked as a technical assistant in the department. So I was sort of helping people with their tape-to-tape -tape analog video editing and made friends with the engineers and made friends with the technicians there and kind of gravitated into that kind of field. I, ne I never made the great independent movie or anything like that, which is <laughs> maybe the plan to start with, but I, I moved away from anything like that. I, I found I liked working with teams of people. Uh, rather than myself. Mm. I gravitated towards video because there was more stuff to play with. The, the technical side of the, of the process was more interesting to me. I did dabble in as a freelance editor for a little bit, but I found I, I couldn't sort of do that and also be like the post-supervisor or the technical person helping the other editors in, in the team. So you kind of had to pick and choose, or, or I did anyway. I said, okay, if I, I can't really do both well, so I'll do the one thing and not the other. Right. Was that a matter of focus or more a matter of time? A little bit of both. Um, I also found that my interest in editing was very dependent on who I was working with. Mm. I'm not sure that I had the temperament necessarily to work with everybody. And we all know it's, I mean, it's, it's a more social career than, than one would think, right? You're not just sitting in a dark room. Right. You do have to work with a producer and, you know, director and things like that. Right. Sure. Which I, I did enjoy, but it was very much 
personality based and i don't freelancing you maybe don't have that choice you gotta take all the work that comes your way (laughs) i think we both had a similar epiphany at one point that uh being a jack of all trade master of none is a little bit more of a painful life as well as uh life working with the tech specifically might be a little bit more lucrative and steadier than the artistic side of things. It was more interesting to me. And I, and I did enjoy sort of the macro view of it. Mm-hmm. The thing that I remember is, I mean, some of the documentary long form style things that I did were, you know, shooting ratio of, I think we ended up with like 75 to one with mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. analog videotape. And this was a uh, three quarter inch and beta SP right. delivering it all the way, you know, year and a half edit schedule. And delivering everything to a linear conform and audio sweetening and the whole thing. Um, and don't lose that tape. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. You need to have a, a bachelor's degree in library sciences at that point to manage all of this tape, that tape stock. Well, I didn't have that either, <laughs> but, uh, you sort of figure out a, a good workflow right. in terms of things like that. And that's also sort of where I became involved in sort of dealing and interacting with linear conform houses and post-production houses and things like that. Yeah. Because that conform is it's a pretty technical process, right? It is, you know, and uh, it was a linear conform session was, you know, a couple hundred dollars an hour. Mm-hmm. And I did that about the time when the, I started at the post house because they had these, you know, million dollar plus edit suites, you know, linear conform edit suites and a, a very nice audio department mm-hmm. with uh, quiet rooms, sand in the ceiling to deaden the sound and uh, fantastic gear and really professional people. And then a couple of uh, nonlinear edit systems over in the corner. You know, it's like, okay, well, y- you can be in charge of those. And well, yeah. you know, that's really not most of our day. So you can also be in charge of the phones. <laughs> Great. And things like that. So, well, what did these linear suites look like? I personally have never seen one. So it's, uh, and at the time, right, the, the aesthetic of the room was basically the, uh, the bridge of the Death Star. Everything was very dark. Uh-huh. You know, there was a whole crew of people, an online editor. You know, this is back the distinction between online and offline editing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So these are the online editors, and you brought them all the things, all the tapes all the elements, and hopefully an edit decision list on a disc. Right. Gotcha. The post house I worked at was uh, pretty much top to bottom Sony equipment, a Sony switcher, Sony edit controller, digital beta cam, and then the effects, which were, you know, usually a whole other piece of gear. Right. Sure. The post house I had had a, a graphics department as well. So there was another floor where the flame artist was and the mm. Inferno system and, and all of that stuff. But really, the, what people were, you know, the clients were coming in to pay for was the expertise of those people. Absolutely. I actually heard just to what you just said, I, I heard from a fellow voice talent many years ago in, in response to a producer who said, Oh, we just paid this guy $400 to come in and read something for 15 minutes. And the voice talent said, no, you paid for the 10 years or 15 years of experience that I had before I came here today. Right. <laughs> I, um, you know, I'll, I'll name drop a little bit, right? The documentary specials I worked on, one of them was for HIV and AIDS education. And it was a broadcast special on ABC because the producer owner of the company had been a producer at uh, 2020 mm. prior to that. Mm. So the voiceover was, uh, you know, the, the host of the special was Barbara Walters. Nice. Mm-hmm. And uh, her time was extremely valuable. Mm-hmm. Right. But it was a little bit of a revelation because, you know, we booked the session. She walked in, read all the stuff, read, did all the stand-ups and things like that, and pretty much spot on. You know, the timing was right. dead on. You know, there were very few retakes. And then she walked out right. and it was done and it was good. I, I think you have to see that to appreciate that yep. it's not an easy job. Nope. It's not. And I mean, uh, you know, I from my experience in working in, in the production field, I would say whatever part of the industry you're in, one of the most valuable times is that is that is capturing the performance, whether you're in, you know, doing voiceover, you're doing a shoot, you're doing documentary films, reality TV, whatever it is, it seems like the performance is really, that's where a lot of your money goes because you're not going to get it back. You know, you're never going to recreate that performance. And usually a lot of your resources are active during that time. Crews, your PAs, your producers, your directors are all part of that process, helping to make those decisions. 
I find that's the other thing that people maybe don't see is like the the massive number of people who are behind the scenes supporting all that. That online editor who's being paid top dollar has two assistants and an engineer, VTR technician somewhere in the background who unjams the tape yeah. to kind of make things go smoothly so that the hourly rate you're paying, you know, isn't wasted. Sure. Yeah, exactly. And then nonlinear kind of threw all that on its ear. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, totally different ball game, right? Yeah. It's almost like the difference between broadcast and IP. You're you're dealing with completely different schools of thought, really. Very much so. And and I, you know, I I've done this for long enough that I think I've survived a couple of those transitions, right? You know, I did the transition from analog to digital, from SD to HD, mm-hmm. from linear to nonlinear. And now to the cloud. And now to the cloud, <laughs> the 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 thing that I rant about a lot where I work and, and previously, I, I always think back to when someone brings you the box of tapes from the field and they're all labeled tape one. What do you do? How do you find the thing? <laughs> I, I remember a story from years ago. This was a, a small independent producer who came to us to do some sort of project and they had bought a couple boxes of beta SP tape right? With no labels on them, you know, had some detailed logs and things like that, but wouldn't let us write on any of the tapes. (laughs) Turns out the reason was that they were going to rewind all the tapes and return them to wherever they bought them from, (laughs) B&H photo or something like that and get the money back. (laughs) So this was a very independent production. Wow. At that point. Understood. I think that the metaphor of the box of tapes coming in from the field still applies mm-hmm. oh, it sure does. in a nonlinear world, in a digital world. And it's almost worse, right? Because the shooting ratio is so much higher because now you can just shoot yes. forever. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right? Before you had to run out when, you know, you had to stop when you ran out of film in the magazine or those that box of 10 beta tapes that you bought. Right. Yeah. So there was that, that budget of this is our media, our media budget. It's it's this much tape. That's how much it covers. This is how much we got for this project, this shoot. And then you're done. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you kind of like as you're going through the tape, you're like saying, okay, we got this much tape left. What do we have to get yet? You know, now it's just like whatever we need. <laughs> you know, we're just going to keep recycling these cards and rewriting to them. And somebody at some point is going to have to figure it out. Hopefully we're doing that as we go. <laughs> but e- even the camera cards, it's it's exactly the same as reloading film magazines, right? Yeah, yeah. This happened when when we started deploying beta cam cameras or or XD mm-hmm. cam. Sony XD cam mm-hmm. was the format of choice, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden, people started using prosumer digital cameras, and like you know, well, I need that SD card back, <laughs> so copy the file yeah, off and yeah. give me the card back because they're expensive. Right. <laughs> to me, it's exactly the same as you know. Here's the camera magazine put the new spool of film in and give it back so that they can keep shooting. But it's quote unquote digital, right? Yeah. you know, uh, but the paradigm is sort of the same. And the, and the workflow you figure out is got to take the film out of the magazine and put it in the dark bag and don't drop it or, or shine light on it. Right. It's exactly the same as don't lose all those mini micro SD cards. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. And pr- pray that somebody's checksumming them as they move across the pipe onto somebody's laptop hard drive. And then... Oh, people cut corners so often with th- things like that. Mm-hmm. You just kind of hope that you squeak by because we've definitely had situations where something has been lost. The one thing I try to do, because I am in the post side of news production, is just drill into everybody, like make that backup and copy it again. And it's it's an ongoing education process, right? Because there's new folks all the time. You don't really learn that lesson until something bad happens. And we do our best to do data recovery and things like that, but sometimes it doesn't work. So there's there's the the belt and suspenders approach that you have to take. Yeah, for sure. I I definitely feel like it's that it's it is that situation of it's never happened to me before you know i take care of my stuff and blah 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 blah. and it happened to this person over here maybe because oh they weren't being quite as careful i think it's happened to all of us you know yeah and the producers don't you know i'll say that they're worried about other things right sure and you know they want to shoot the story interview the person and move on to the next thing Mm -hmm. so hopefully again you know that we're here to support them and we're here to make sure that there is a safety net for them they're they're not mindful of the you know they don't know what all horrible things could go wrong (laughs) (laughs) right right. otherwise they'd never sleep at night 
<laughs> so let's let's shift a little bit and talk about what makes uh, an environment like Viacom CBS News. What makes that environment different than? Uh, say film production or television, episodic television production or something like that. Right. Um, what are some of the considerations that make that uh, a little bit different? And how did you make the uh, the transition and wind up at CBS News? Just out of yeah. curiosity. The post house I worked at was unfortunately going the way of all things, right? In the, in the late 90s, early 2000s, the, the cost just, you know, when you can do the thing on your laptop now that you used to be able to only do in a million dollar edit room, uh, it becomes very difficult to support that kind of workflow or, or that kind of facility. Mm -hmm. They still exist, but my impression, because I'm out of that world, my impression is, again, that it's very much centered on the creative artist. Sure. You don't go to a boutique place like that, except that you're, you want to work with that person. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Whether they're working on a, an Autodesk Inferno system or on their laptop mm -hmm. in a Adobe After Effects, maybe you don't care about that or you shouldn't care. Right. Um, so it's less about the tool and, you know, well, they've got the new tool, not the old tool. It's more about the person. But what happened was at the post house, one of the, the focuses of that post house was sports production. And all of the broadcasters were clients as as that work was declining and specifically you know cbs sports was uh, pulling a lot of their work in-house and at the same time there was a huge transition in at cbs news to move to a centralized digital nonlinear workflow gotcha and uh i i was sort of tipped off that there was an opportunity there so i I pursued that and, and found myself pretty much the the same week that the the main news production broadcast center was was uh, installing their centralized shared storage. Uh, okay. Which at the time was an early version of the Avid ISIS seven thousand storage. Mm, got it. Um, so I showed up there the same week that it was being installed and into the racks. Nice. There were all these edit bays with a RAID chassis of storage and a linear tape deck and uh they were still outputting the finished edited stories onto videotape putting a barcode on it running it down the hall into the automated playback system uh-huh that would you know at such and such a time during the you know live broadcast play this barcode tape, you know, starting at this time code number. Right. And then, you know, and then switch back to the anchor, switch back to the satellite feed, so on and so forth. So was that, was that shared storage implementation there, uh, part of retiring that system or was it more just to retire, more just to sort of unify the nonlinear? It was, I mean, it was a transition, right? So instead of everybody okay. working on, you know, their own storage in their edit bay, we would centralize all that. Mm -hmm. But the other part of the transition was moving from videotape based production output and, you know, ingest to Sony XD cam digital file based mm -hmm. formats. Right. Okay. So we were, we were changing a lot of things in midstream, you know, and keeping the broadcast on the air every day. Right. Yeah. So that, that's a big, you just mentioned right there. That's a big thing to mention is that never really stops because, because you're doing an upgrade or you're tearing out this technology and replacing it with this one. It's got to keep going, right? It does. The only other thing that I think worth mentioning is when I started there, it was all familiar tools, right? There was, it was an Avid editor and it was, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Avid storage prior to ISA 7000 was Unity Media Net, right? Which I had familiarity with mm -hmm. right. at the post house, you know, and, and they even had a basic asset management, which was called, you know, Avid Media Manager. Yes. At the time, if you remember that one, do. Mm -hmm. you know, so here I land in a, a new daily news broadcast environment. We're using all the same tools in a completely different way. Mm -hmm. Right. I'll remember distinctly one of the editors at the time, you know, said to me, you know, I need to find X, Y, or Z like on the tape. Right. I said, well, what's the time code? And he said, oh, I don't use time code. And my, mm -hmm. my brain kind of short circuited for a moment. I thought, how, how can you not, you know, it's, it's all built around time code. And what he meant is that everything is time of day and he just okay. hits roll record and then winds back. And he doesn't really ever think about logging notes or something, you know, that, that was recorded the day before or anything like that. We just read that voiceover and it was 10 minutes ago. So he winds. Right. So from that standpoint, yeah, he never even thinks about the time code on the tape. <laughs> right. But it was a little bit 
of a culture shock maybe or just a readjustment like where we're using all the same tools in a completely different way. Mm-hmm. They they were not in the habit of saving their projects at the end of the night. Like they just assumed it would be there the next day and they were moved on to the next thing. Right? Oh, so, gotcha. Gotcha. You know, yesterday's story is is gone. Yeah. And and I came from a world where, you know, you better make a backup on a, a floppy disk or a zip drive or or something because right. when your hard drive dies, you know, your system drive dies, you have your project file and all your tapes so you can just redigitize everything mm-hmm. and you know you've lost a bunch of time but you haven't lost your work right 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 and uh they just didn't think about that like you know they made their final story output handed it off to the the playback automation system and moved on to the next thing sounds like a great job for somebody with adhd <laughs> <laughs> i only yeah. say that because that's you know that's something that i think i struggle with on a regular basis it's that it's that oh you know the next day is like nothing nothing that happened yesterday can, can i remember right. <laughs> so we just we just start over again with whatever it is we need to work on and yeah you know and it's a team effort i mean that's the other thing is there's so many mm-hmm. people involved with supporting all that yeah Sure. And uh, and that was the other part that took a lot of education on my part. Like I had to learn about this whole new part of the workflow that is just simply very different than, you know, long form documentary or something like that. Mm-hmm. Sure. So once I got to CBS News, you know, the the transition, the, the changes never stopped. Right. So we, we implemented shared storage and then we implemented asset management. <laughs> then we implemented a digital archive, mm-hmm. you know, and digital ingest through, and and a lot of it was, uh, it, it was really an end-to-end Avid solution. So gotcha. we, we've, for a long time, have had, you know, pretty much one of almost everything that Avid uh, <laughs> offers as a, as a solution. And I'm sure they appreciate that. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Let me ask you about the media asset management you mentioned a minute ago. Um, was that implementing a, a MAM into, into a work group can be a pretty daunting task because it, it tends to introduce some, you know, potential workflow changes, how we get from our ingest to our archive, you know, through our, our work in progress and our delivery and all that. It can tend to change that a little bit. Did you have some resistance internally from, from users with that, from, from editors? What was that process like? It took a while to kind of get everybody used to changing their work habits. Mm -hmm. Asset management or not, like you have a whole bunch of people who are used to working on their own the way they want to work. Yeah. (laughs) Once you start collaborating at that level and, you know, Avid provided the, the tools to be able to do that, you kind of have to put everybody in a room together and say, okay, look, like you're all working together. So that thing that you ingested two weeks ago and named it badly you know, clip one, clip two, clip three, right? I know where it is. I don't, you know, I don't need to name it anything else, but that can mess somebody else up. Right. Somebody else has to find that Mm -hmm. and vice versa, right? You know, next week it's going to be you that needs to find the thing that some other people did or a freelancer who hasn't worked there in six months. Right. Mm-hmm. Th- that education and re-education and review and and re- you know reminding everybody it almost never stops. Mm-hmm. You know, in a large news organization, there's there's so much churn of people. The the education is ongoing, and and what we try to avoid is, you know, well, who told you to do that? Uh-huh. Well, I learned from this other person who learned from that other person over there. Yeah, you know, and well, we've never seen you before. And getting a handle on on just resetting everybody so that like, okay, no, this is our procedure and this is our naming convention. And if we all kind of agree on it, it almost doesn't matter what it is as long as you have a system in place. Yep. And getting that system out, I find, is 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 challenging for some organizations because of that, especially in organizations that transition from, um, you know, like a smaller size and then start growing very quickly mm. and bringing people on, maybe bringing in freelancers. You, you mentioned freelancers. And I know in, in my previous role, educating freelancers was a challenge just just because for the staffers, it's a day in, day out process. Like we know what to do. We We've had endless meetings about it. And if it's not written down and documented with easy to follow instructions, you, you bring any freelancer into that situation and they're going to do what they always do. They're, they're going to work on their own and, and get the job done and do a really good job. But you may be encountering some of those issues you mentioned, like naming conventions and where did who park the car? <laughs> it's 
it's funny because I, I've seen both things. I've seen that, but then I've also seen freelancers who are used to working anywhere. Mm-hmm. There are folks who have, you know work at all the networks and bounce around, and you know they're the ones you call if you need somebody on Saturday night mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the other person called in sick or or they just need another editor. And some of those folks can adapt to anything. And if they've done that long enough, they ask the questions walking in the door. It's like, okay, how do you want to do this? And who should I give it to? And and things like that. Yeah, exactly. Because you, person who hired me, is going to go away. And I might not be able to find you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So give me all the info. Or I'm I'm booked to work at 2 a.m. And there's nobody to call. You know, there's sort of desktop support for the editors, which is very different than help desk for the people who can't f- figure out their email or the printer, right? Yes, sure. Even though it's all, it, everything is a computer now, right? But then we also find that, you know, especially as, as archive has become more integrated, there, there used to be silos and those silos are going away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the thing that you, you used to just make a tape and put a barcode on it and send it to the archive department and never think about it again. But now you need that tape back, you know, six months later, or, um, and maybe it's not a tape anymore. It's a digital file where you used to have to pick up the phone and call an archivist and say, um, I need footage of the moon landing, right? That's the classic example. Now you can just log into an archive portal, type in moon landing, yep. get everything that, that comes up in a search select all and restore it to production. Right. And not only that, hopefully you can use things like low res proxies to make the decisions about what you need to restore. Right. There's that sort of age old, I need this project back because I need to use this one clip, this one piece of footage from this project. So just restore the whole thing and I'll figure it out later. <laughs> I, I have a, co- I'm going to steal a colleague's metaphor, which is, um, you know, I'd, I'd like to have a salad for lunch today. <laughs> Call up California and have them send me all the lettuce. <laughs> and I'll pick out the lettuce I want once it gets here. <laughs> I like that. Robert, that's great. Uh that's really great. I've never heard that analogy before, but I love it. And uh please don't please don't mind if you hear it repeated. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll definitely credit, credit you. Yeah, I'm not the it. one who thought of it. <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah. I'm going to say for our listeners, that is a great analogy. Uh that is a great analogy when we're working with archive systems. You know, sometimes we don't have the tools to be able to make those decisions up front, but hopefully we do. And not everybody can do partial file restore either. So there, you right. might have to get a small bale of lettuce instead of the entire state of California. In terms of the ongoing transition of tools, uh, something I can say about that is that, you know, we, we always had the production asset management, right? Mm-hmm. And then there is the true MAM archive, right? So your library of content versus uh, the systems that help you get your work done today. Exactly. Right. And uh, we never implemented partial file restore in the PAM archive. Okay. Because we knew that we would have it in the the bigger archive, Mm -hmm. like the true digital archive. So Mm -hmm. it it wasn't worth implementing. But then the way things go, like Mm -hmm. the MAM archive implementation and transition took longer than expected. Mm. There was a lot of times where really the technical limitation was that you were not doing partial file restore mm-hmm. or unless you did the inavid, the consolidation and archive ahead of time. Ah, uh, gotcha. Right? So you would take your final sequence, the air master, consolidate that so that you weren't archiving, you know, anything more than you needed for that sequence and then only sending that to archive. But then the links break. This is like, this is the uh, process of the, the NLE sort of takes all of the clips in your project, all the pieces that you used, and maybe there's some handles on there. Like, yep. you know, we start like one or two seconds before the clip starts in the timeline and one or two seconds after. And we re-render those and save those files so that when I, as an editor, open this file up 10 years later, all those files are there. Now, I can't go back to the original two-hour-long piece of media that I'm editing with, but I've at least got, you know, my timeline there. So I can add things to it or... You know, maybe massage the handles a little bit if I have to. Right, but at the same token, you're not um, you're not flattening that final cut into a single piece of media that you can't open up and change when you know maybe the voiceover has to be recorded, re-recorded, or the correspondent right. changed, right. and they need to revisit the story. Right. Yeah. And that's maybe the distinction between production archive and and 
archive archive mm. you know man right. archive or or now dam which is the you know when when the marketing department wants the stuff from the news broadcast along with the stills and the fonts and the other things for the web app and whatever whatever else right. and sure. the script and the transcript and the legal documents you know that gets really much much more complex and hopefully uh, well thankfully i would say um i'm mostly upstream of that right we just we provide content into those other systems and we don't always need to retrieve it right and occasionally a salesperson or a legal person calls us up and says you know we well we need this this and this yeah yeah so this is where the production technology and the and the sort of general general technology in the organization need to meet somehow and work together exactly right and that's that's a little bit of a culture clash for sure it sure is <laughs> or yeah. it can be you know as, yeah. as we find and and I know uh, just just based on our history at Chesapeake Systems, we've we've worked in many different you know respects with that that challenge. I guess I want to call it because it's I wouldn't say it's a conflict because more and more you know what we are finding is that we all really need to work together. It's it's really to everyone's benefit if we work together and stop thinking of these as silos. Yes, uh, because we're all now having to use the same technology. The expectations in the industry are that. You know, we are doing some data science and things like that that we haven't had to do in this industry before. So it really is to everyone's best interest to work together in, in these with these solutions, right? It's definitely true. Um, the focus is different. Like what the archivist needs or wants is completely different than what the show producer wants or needs mm, yeah. um, until that day when they need to, the, the the content needs to swim back upstream, right? It's like, now I really need that thing that I did six months ago. Right. Well, what was it called? I don't know, <laughs> you know, but I need it now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, I know that's, it's that, it's that game of um, what can you tell me about, about the thing you need other than, <laughs> you know, other than it happened this, it, can you even tell me what date it happened on? That's a right. start. <laughs> yeah. And and to that point, I mean, the the organization has a huge number of archivists, and that's their job. You know, yeah. historically, you called them up and you said, "This is the thing I need," and they would find it for you. Right. And some of those things have changed, where you know now you can do it yourself. You don't have to call a person. So let me ask you this: in an environment like you have there, what are some of the really really critical key pieces of infrastructure that you're working with on a day to day basis? And, and especially in and around news, right? Because right, we talk so much about post production, but there's such such immediacy in that world. So I'm just curious what, from your point of view, Rob, what's the big differences? Um, the, the turnaround time is the huge differentiator, I think, because mm -hmm. what I see is, you know, there are stories that are edited from beginning to end in 45 minutes before we go in the air, right. you know, and, you know, 6.30 p.m. every night is you can't argue with that. Like you're, you're going to be done. It's going to happen. <laughs> and uh, there are weekly deadlines. You know, there are weekly news magazine shows. Sixty Minutes mm -hmm. is, has a little bit of a different schedule. Um, mm -hmm. Probably to biggest thing to support that is number one is a workflow where we kind of all agree on a common format, right? Because you, you can't stop and re-render everything or transcode because um, something was shot accidentally in, in 1080p or, you know, 23.9, you know, whatever. Right. Progressive mm -hmm. or 720p, something like that. Right. Um, so maybe the biggest thing to support a day of air broadcast like this is to do all that processing at the beginning. So, and, and you don't know what you're getting. So we have a lot of tools in our bag to transcode everything. A Telestream Vantage mm -hmm. is one. Uh, there's other tools, other transcoders. Um, Adobe Media Encoder works great for the things you don't quite know mm -hmm. what it is, but also a staff to do that work and then do the detective work because you don't always know what it is when they give it to you. Right. The more you can do that ahead of time to homogenize all the content into our broadcast format, because right. now there's no sending, you know, barcoding the tape and sending it down the hall. Like it's a digital file transfer. Mm -hmm. If you have to stop and re-render the whole thing, even if it's just a two minute news story, sometimes that time is you don't have that time to do that. So yeah, yeah. that's, yeah, that's probably the biggest specific thing, you know, under the covers, then you have like all the networking involved and all of the 
the infrastructure. Um, right. Field acquisition is is the other big challenge because everything used to be a satellite feed, mm-hmm. mm. right? So somebody would feed something in from a truck. Somebody in the broadcast center would, you know, call it up on the router and hit record, either on their NLE, like baseband ingest, mm-hmm. or or something like that. And that doesn't always happen now. So a lot of things are file transfer. A lot of things are are no joke FTP. Yep. We relied on that heavily for a long time, and and you know we're moving into other sorts of file acceleration. You know, corporate IT, of course, is is uh, imposing some new rules on that as well. For sure, right? FTP is not secure. Right. No, no, it's not. I was going to say, hopefully, it's at least SFTP. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, for a long time, it wasn't. Yeah. Um, and you know, we sort of did our own thing. And and infrastructurally, the other thing is that it was always uh, an island, right? The broadcast operation was was disconnected from the internet. Sure. Disconnected from the outside world, and we we jumped through a, some hoops to. You know, you don't want to sneaker and add a thumb drive into your system and release uh, uh, something bad. Mm-hmm. Right. But a lot of those air gaps are, have gone away yep. because mm-hmm. we're, especially now that we're remote working. Yeah. Uh, we have to expose that environment to the outside world. Of yeah, course. That's, that's so fascinating to me because living through this age of a pandemic, right, where everything then is both we're so aware of how connected we are via technology, but also how connected we are via the bacterium layer as well. And it's, <laughs> it's almost the same thing. We're talking about the digital level here, right? But it's also reflecting on the global level of what we're, you know, kind of dealing with. So, yeah, um, yeah quarantining files as they come in and making sure that we're doing virus virus scanning i mean we're doing the same thing with each other these days as well so (laughs) yeah it's like the the data pandemic is just coming it's going to be the next wave uh, (laughs) i just made myself sad come come back to come back to the present (laughs) right right stop talking it's it's not all that bad 2020 is over okay (laughs) this is a new year Right. We have new disasters to welcome in, in, right. in 2021. No, just kidding. Um, so let's talk a little bit, now that we brought the pandemic into the discussion, let's talk a little bit about how things have changed for you and, and your team uh, in the last year or so. Um, did Number one, uh, did you guys see this coming? Like how we are working now to like, mm. you know, we, we, we talked to, we, we, we talked to some technologists about a year ago and they said, yeah, this cloud stuff is it's a couple years off. Like, you know, nobody's really too excited about it yet. And then suddenly it was like, bam, everybody wants it now. <laughs> so there's a, you could sort of draw a grid of our entire broadcast operation, right. And put boxes and, you know, the different shows and the ingest, the editing, the storage, the archive, the broadcast, right. And what started to happen you know, more than a year ago was you could draw a little cloud in any of those boxes, right. So, well, we're in the cloud now. You know, we started to use Sony C mm-hmm. for uh, review and approval. Mm-hmm. and a little bit of acquisition. And we thought, you know, because again, w- what we were trying to do at the time a few years ago was stop producers from uploading a, a rough cut to Vimeo sure. or YouTube because the legal people would come after us for that. You know, that's content that's before it's aired and it's it's gotten out of our control. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, you can't really say no to news producer without offering them an alternative. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. You know, it's it's easy to say, well, no, you can't do that. Well, yeah, but I have to do this work. So they're going to work around it mm-hmm. uh, if you don't provide an alternative, you know, and this was, you know, it's under our control. It's encrypted. It's secure. It gave us what we wanted to do, right? And it's cloud-based. Sure. And then on the on the far end of the workflow chain, because when we, we implemented the digital archive, it, it used to be a warehouse of shelves and videotapes and film and everything else, you name it. And if you needed some stuff, like you called a person and they pulled some things off the shelf and brought it to you in a box, mm. right? Uh, that turned into a digital archive on the premises, which was an LTO archive library, uh, very large. So then you could search through the archive database and find some stuff and do a restore. But then the notion came down, well, we really need to move that content into something else into the cloud so that's been an ongoing process and that's a lot of material Mm -hmm. sure it is it doesn't happen overnight 
and it doesn't happen once because there's always the somebody brings up the question of well we'll just wheel in the big hard drive thing right you'll offload everything and you'll you'll copy all the stuff on those lto tapes to that and take it away and we'll copy it into the cloud mm -hmm. right that's great except we have to do that every day <laughs> yeah <laughs> and there's, there's a constant churn of new material coming in and, and yeah. old material that needs to be offloaded off of the the tier one have an isis 7000 or now nexus storage to cheaper storage mm -hmm. or to the cloud. Mm -hmm. So we were already moving to the cloud from both ends of the workflow chain. Yeah. Right. But then there's that middle part that was on premises because that's where our content was in the storage. Mm -hmm. And that's where our editors were and where our edit workstations were. There wasn't really a notion of working remotely so much. Yeah. I, I think we got a little bit of a, a hint that that was starting to happen or, you know, early in 2020. I think we could have used, because, I mean, Manhattan was one of the places that got hit mm -hmm. quickly. Sure. So there was a time in March when they called everybody together and just said, you know, in the broadcast center, which is on the, you know, West 57th Street in Manhattan, and said, uh, everybody go home. Don't come back. You're working remotely now. Yeah. I think we could have used another week or two. A little prep <laughs> to really get things. We we scrambled and yeah. and we we got it done. We never missed an air date. That's pretty amazing. It was rough to begin with, and uh, the support people are all remote. Uh, for a while, there was almost no one in the broadcast center. Uh, that's changed now. There's a skeleton crew that still goes on site. Mm -hmm. uh, there are very strict rules about access to the broadcast center where we work. Mm -hmm. uh, who's there? How many people are there at any given time? Very strict regulations on on testing mm -hmm. before you get in the building. And the basic directive is if you don't need to go in, don't go in and work remotely. Yeah. Heavily made use of Zoom and Slack and things like that for uh, remote support because I have to support an editor who's remote somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And then the various remote access tools. We, we kind of do a mix of people who are working at home with edit systems in their house people who are working from home remotely into the broadcast center. Mm -hmm. So uh, HP RGS is really the, the tool of choice there. Okay. And we are experimenting and, and you know, there, there is some proof of concepts and things. And, and we've been doing some work with Avid Edit on Demand cloud-based solution. Right. Okay. That's not cheap though, right? To spin all of that up. I'd say it's hard to compare apples to oranges. Sure. You know, yeah. on the face of it, no, it's not cheap. Right. But at the same time, it's, you know, you spin it down when you're done with it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thinking back to my independent production days, you know, we, we, you buy four or five edit systems back when they were really expensive. Mm -hmm. And then when the production was over, what do you do with them? Right. I rented them out to other independent producers who mm -hmm. needed, you know, needed an edit system for a couple months. Yep. So those days are over. Everybody can edit on their laptop now. Yep. Yep. And so the Avid on demand system, that's running uh media composer inside of virtual desktops in the cloud, as well as a virtualized version of the Nexus storage, if I'm remembering correctly. That's correct. That gives you the so far like the basic project sharing and bin locking functionality that that avid shared storage offers i have not yet seen the asset management layer on top of that mm -hmm. uh, although I'm, I'm told that is coming yeah um, obviously what we want to see is the entire end-to-end -end workflow right which is a challenge you know and then there's the the tricky part of moving content up and down yeah and how to do that as as few times as possible yep right and where it where it stays for editorial yeah that brings in the question of uh, the the buzzword of data gravity right mm. all the content is in the broadcast center on the storage in there right that's where the the video feeds are coming in baseband feeds recorded and dumped into the storage there right so that's where you want to be and you don't necessarily have the time to move the content you want to the cloud so that you can edit it. Have it had a cloud editing media composer cloud uh, a while back where I think it was very clever, you know, where, where you were sort of in the field streaming the content from that shared storage to your remote workstation. So you were sort of seeing a proxy mm -hmm. and editing with it and then 
sending the full res media back to central storage, you know, in the background. Mm. And I think that's still that's still an offering that is available. We never implemented that. Got it. So that's streaming proxies using Media Composer that would connect to is that that's where you need the asset management layer to create those proxies, right? And then VPN back into the central hub. Exactly right. And that's mm-hmm. um, Avid Media Central, formerly Interplay Central, right? Yep. And again, the, the clever thing that's happening there is that if there is no proxy, the server system is generating a proxy and streaming it to you on the fly. Yep. Mm. yep. And that works really well. It, you do need the asset management because there's a lot of stuff going on in the background to, to orchestrate that. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's not easy to put together. Right. Yeah. And the price tag is avid commensurate. <laughs> it's it's for large broadcasters. Sure. You know, it's, yeah. it's certainly not something a, a small production would, they'd like to have it, but maybe they don't have the budget for it or, yeah. or don't have the staff to support it because this, this thing doesn't run itself. Yeah. You know, it, it does require a fair amount of uh, TLC. Sure. 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 As, as, as any, as any system does, right? It does, you know, and I think that maybe in years past and, uh, you know, I've, I've, made this presentation to management as well, where you could take our entire workflow now and do a word replace. And let's pretend that we want to rebuild the entire thing, only not with Avid. It's certainly possible now where it might not have been in the past. Yep. Mm-hmm. But it's it's no simpler. And, and then it becomes a, a multi, multi-vendor engagement. And that's a choice that has to be made. Yeah, I was just going to say, that's the, I, I would say that's that's probably the challenge there is that you're kind of on your own to build it yourself uh, with off-the-shelf parts, I guess. <laughs> it's build or buy, right? You know, either you, you the, the, the old, uh, what was the old saying, you know, you'd never... You were never fired for buying IBM, right? right. Or uh, maybe in broadcast, it was Sony, right? You could build an entire Sony Music Studios. Like uh, I remember talking to an engineer once upon a time who worked there who said, when something breaks, you just go into the back and, and pull another one off the shelf. <laughs> you know, a, t- a whole VTR broke. You just unpacked a new one because sure. it was Sony from top to bottom. Sure. You know, a very different environment now. And I think even in a mostly end-to-end Avid-centric workflow that we have, when somebody says, you know, producer has a problem and say, well, call the Avid guys, right? That includes anything that touches that system. Mm. So all of the third-party stuff that Mm. accesses that storage or has to communicate with that asset management system, even a a complete Avid solution has third parties integrated into it. They They don't make the LTO library Right. that I use. Right. They don't make the middleware that connects the LTO library to the Avid asset management. Right. They don't make the transcoder. Right. Or the switching. Yeah. Or the or the edit workstations or mm-hmm. the servers. You know, but they are my first phone call. Yeah. And I will definitely say in Avid's favor, I'm a former ACSR myself, so it's definitely a cohesive system. Right. They've got all the spots in place. And if you do need to call and run a code blue and talk to one of the engineers, you can. You'll pay for it, but you can, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think maybe part of the, the sales pitch for the Avid on demand solution is that you are, the support is rolled up. And even with the subscriptions now, right. Ben Productions Incorporated <laughs> working in your room there, mm-hmm. your subscription includes the support. Yeah, and when you're done, you you stop paying or whatever, and it, it's all kind of self. Maybe the the all-in-one solution now is, is the convenience, right? More so than you buy an Avid Media Composer four thousand, and it comes with the hard drives and the speakers and the keyboard and the computer and the monitors, and you put it all together. That's that's my back in the day. Mm-hmm. story there because right. then there was a box that said open me first here's how you hook it all up together right. <laughs> you know even they don't want to support like the the server that i bought from hp right yeah right i'm gonna call hp when i have a server problem yeah, but god bless them they will write up a technical document to say that these four machines from hp will work doing this at this resolution and go to town with it. And what I've always said about that is, you know, in, in my day-to-day work, I practice orthodox avid. <laughs> we follow those guidelines because, you know, it's it's not Rob's news. Right. 
And uh, sure, I could build an interplay server out of parts and pieces, but I don't want to be dependent on that at you know six twenty-five p.m. Yeah. every night. Right? Yeah, you want to have a redundant one. You want to know if you need to order one because your redundant one failed. You can do so. Definitely, lots of uh, lots of big value there. So. Uh, the one thing I'm wondering about is this big transition for Viacom CBS into the cloud. How has that impacted you so far? And what are you excited about? What terrifies you? There are so many things changing all at once. Mm -hmm. I can imagine. There was a merger a, a few years ago, right? So, mm -hmm. um, and that's complete now. I worked at CBS News and now it's part of Viacom CBS, a larger organization. And, uh, mm -hmm a lot of that consolidation and is, is starting to happen. So I'm doing my best to get to know the people who are doing my job in other parts of the organization. Yep. Sure. And we all have the same problems and we all have the same, uh, that kind of knowledge sharing is, is always fun and interesting. Yeah, definitely. And that's, that's the part I, the tricky part is, is figuring out who those people are sometimes. Yeah, sure. It's so you're you're doing some workflow therapy in your organization with your with <laughs> your new uh with your with your new colleagues. And sometimes you run into people you already knew. Um sure. You know, there there's uh some folks who work in you know what we have referred to as legacy Viacom. So they were Viacom people before the merger. Mm -hmm. I knew them from post-production rental in New York years before that sure so it's always fun to kind of get reacquainted so what are what are some of the challenges that are you said so much is changing what are some things that are what are some of the things that are really exciting to you the thing that happens now you know now that everything is a computer right mm -hmm. i've been aware of a long time that you know there's a lot of new stuff to learn and you kind of have to pick and choose yeah maybe what you want to focus on i compare it to you know way back when i did make a conscious decision to kind of focus on film and video not so much audio mm -hmm. so that that was never really my uh my focus and now we're at a point where i went to film school i, I don't have a computer science background in particular mm -hmm. except that everything has now a computer yes i never really learned programming coding mm -hmm. but it sure seems like that's something that it would be worthwhile focusing on some of that mm -hmm. um Sometimes I wonder how people do their jobs without knowing any kind of computer programming these days. I mean, so much of what we do, there's just code behind everything, you know, and all of this workflow orchestration that happens with some of these media asset management platforms. If you understand basic programming, they make so much more sense to mm. just even the basics. For me, I find I really, I need a thing to do, right? Years ago, I, you know, I found an old computer and I installed Linux on it and I said, okay, now what? Right. <laughs> right. And it didn't really become anything that stuck in my brain until here again, some of the Avid server products started to become Linux based. Sure. And it's like, okay, now this is something I need to I need to be able to understand for my day-to-day -day work. Mm -hmm. That's when it really started to stick in my brain. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel the same way about um, a lot of these, this cloud stuff, right? Yeah. I, I don't want to be dismissive about it, but it, it hasn't really touched me professionally until now. Sure. And I have to pick and choose what I focus on. My plan for the year is to take some basic AWS courses and things like that. Sure. What I hear you saying is that you you trust in members of your team, members of your organization to to really be the experts in what they are doing and inform you as a decision maker, as a key decision maker on on what, where you need to go and why. It's uh, large broadcast organizations are, let's say, very conservative. They, they're slow to move mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. for good reason, right? So in one sense, we, we can... We can see stuff coming a long way away, and it's going to take a long time to tr make the transition. And it can't be, you know, it's never a greenfield deployment, right? Sure. So, so we're constantly in a state of flux and constantly in a, a state of change. And we just kind of have to be aware of what's out there. Good example is is actually the HP RGS technology. Mm. I was telling people about it for. A while before you know it's been around for a little while 
I sort of thought it would be fun to take the workstations out of the edit rooms and put them all in the machine room, you know, uh, just to make the room quieter. Yeah. And RGS was great for that. Right. Nobody was really that interested. (laughs) (laughs) And then in March of 2020, all of a sudden they became very interested in in that. (laughs) Hey, that thing that you were talking about, about the the, the machines being somewhere else and the users being somewhere else. We need that now, like everywhere. (laughs) Suddenly became very important, and and that was yeah. a little unpredictable. I do try to keep a little bit of an ear to the ground in terms of what other people are doing and what what other companies that are not Avid are up to. You know how they might integrate because you know again somebody's somewhere is going to come up with something that needs to connect to the Avid asset management system. Yep, right. And hopefully it works kind of out of the box, but it, that's never. It's never seamless. Right. So is this the kind of um, where when you find these solutions that are non-AVID, are you kind of approaching them and saying, hey, there's this thing over here. We need you We need you guys to, to get on board with this. So much of it is a question of timing, right? Sure. There's a, a cool thing that we don't really need or, or don't see where it fits. And then something changes mm-hmm. and all of a sudden that solution becomes uh, ideal. I like to think that I have a perspective where I can see the the larger picture and and communicate that to the people who are coding as well as the end users the editors and the producers who need the thing the what i've found sometimes when you ask for something to be coded custom coding you get exactly the thing you asked for yeah and nothing more <laughs> which is not necessarily what you wanted right and you weren't clear in communicating that. Yeah. And maybe the other person doesn't have your perspective. So didn't realize, oh, gee, you know, if you, you know, if I move this file from the file orchestration, right? You know, we put a file here, we have to move it to there. You didn't say that you needed to delete the file from the original location. Mm-hmm. And you don't learn that until the that original storage fills up and falls over. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. We don't know anything about that, do we, Ben? Not at all. Nope. <laughs> but there's an, you know, there's a big assumption that was made at some point. Like, yes. I thought you would just know that. Yeah. You as the coder, maybe you don't know that. You didn't. Right. You, you know, I did what you told me to do. That's right. Yeah. I find that it's a little bit of a dance uh, between, you know, on the coding side or on the implementation side, communicating what we can do. And on the side of the user, the client, the stakeholder, it's, it's, it's really, what can we do? Well, we can do that. What do you want to do? Well, what can we do? Well, what do you want to do? It's this like dance back and forth of, you know, we, every time we ask these questions, we re- reveal a little bit more about the capabilities, the needs and how those meet up. It, it's, it comes to the forefront with asset management. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Because there's always the presentation up front where someone says, you know, we're going to build one asset management system for everything. Yeah. And if we did that, we would still be building it. Yeah. And we would never be finished. Yep. That's right. And the the feature creep involved with things like that is is a challenge. Yeah. I mean, well, just to sort of um, be a little bit specific about what I hear you saying, we have experience with this too. And and that you know, a lot of times the, the MAM is being brought into, it is supposed to be the one solution for media, but it's got to interact with all of these other systems. We're talking, you know, a- a- any kind of systems that manage any kind of data about that media. And let's say you have a metadata field that is a pick list of, I don't know, formats, or uh, maybe it's a pick list of, of titles or something like that from another system. And if this MAM system doesn't have the ability to say, reach out to that system and build a list on the fly based on, you know, what that system has, it's tough. I mean, it's, it's, then it's this push pull, you know, sort of situation where they constantly have to be talking to each other to see, you know, what the systems have. And that's not always even doable. Yeah. That can be a real challenge with this sort of one system to rule them all approach. Again, because uh, specifically asset management is, is such a long-term engagement. It's just a toolbox and you have to build the, you know, one, my MAM is going to be different than yours. I know you've talked about it on previous podcasts, yep. 
every change is a support engagement or professional services or or something like that. Or you learn how to do it yourself. Yeah, exactly. But then if you've got a support organization too, you have to have clear communication there because they need to support you. So you need to say, hey, I changed this. Oh, cool. Good. Thanks for telling us. Not uh, six months later. Hey, what the heck is this? Right. Or at three in the morning, my phone rings. Yeah. Because this thing didn't work. Oh, yeah, but I needed to... I mean, there's an analog equivalent to that too. Like you find that somebody ran a patch cord across the machine room to send a video feed from one place to another, and cord isn't labeled, right? And nobody told anybody who did that, right? Right. But don't unplug it. <laughs> we don't know what it does, and I pray you don't trip over it. <laughs> right. So again. Just because everything is a computer doesn't doesn't make that problem go away. No, usually not at all. it makes it worse because it's it's obfuscated. It's not hiding in plain sight. You're 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 also not limited to the patch bay, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, Robert Lawson, director of technology for CBS News, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your time. Earlier in the episode, during our recording with Robert, I thanked him for his time and joked that I couldn't imagine there was anything going on in the world on January 6th, 2021, that would be newsworthy. Now, that was before we learned that a mob had stormed the Capitol building just 50 miles away in Washington, D.C. I imagine Robert's day got a bit more interesting after we cut him loose. (laughs) That's our show. We want to thank you for listening. The Workflow Show is a production of Chesapeake Systems and More Banana Productions, with original music created and produced by Ben Kilberg. Please subscribe to The Workflow Show and shout out to us at workflowshow at chessa.com or at workflowshow on Twitter. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason Whetstone. Mm-hmm.